This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. Looking this morning at Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 13. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be. Again, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot Anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, 
with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your blessing and your help as we study your word this morning. Father, we praise you for who you are, that you are the Lord, and there is no other. Father, we exalt your name and pray that as we study this passage, that you would feed our souls, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would remind us of your great grace to us in our salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this final and tenth plague, we recognize there's something fundamentally different about this plague. There are some other differences as well. This is the first plague where the Lord actually guarantees success. Notice in verse 1, he said, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. No more of this, well, your men can go or you can have your feast just within the boundaries of Egypt. But the Lord says, after this happens, he'll let you go. He'll let you go in your entirety. This was also, in many ways, an unmediated plague that the Lord brought. This didn't involve Aaron holding out his staff over the water or throwing dust into the air or any such sign. This was something the Lord himself did. But the fundamental difference between this plague and the other plagues that the Lord brought on Egypt has to do with this. To be spared the effects of the plague, Israel had to do something. Now, beforehand, you'll remember that uh, the text would tell us in the various plagues that the Lord would make a distinction. The cattle of Egypt would die, but the animals of the Hebrews were spared. The land of Egypt was in darkness, but the land of Goshen had light. The Lord created this distinction showing his judgment on the Egyptians, but his mercy upon the Hebrews, sparing them the effects of these plagues. But when it comes to this tenth and final plague, Israel is to be spared, but they have to do something in order to be spared, as we will see. And what they had to do has a great deal to say to us as well. It speaks, it's an action they took that speaks to the heart of where we are today. So let's look at this passage, the chapters 11 and 12, or half of 12 that we read. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, really tell us about the judgment of God against Egypt, the judgment of God against the wicked. Now, it begins with the Lord speaking to Moses. Now remember, we ended verse 10, or chapter 10 rather, uh, where... Moses is before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is angry. Verse 28, he says, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. On the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, As you say, I will not see your face again. 
Then immediately, 11 verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And Moses immediately says that to Pharaoh. Now, some have tried to say, well, the Lord had said to Moses beforehand, uh, possible, except that's not what the Hebrew says. It says the Lord said to Moses. Uh, probably, it seems with that in mind, it's best to understand simply as Moses is there in the presence of Pharaoh, that the Lord reveals this message to him at the time. There's nothing that says he or any prophet has to be alone to receive a message from the Lord. And Moses immediately declares that message to Pharaoh and then goes out, as we've seen. But the message that he gives to Moses is uh, that he'll bring one more plague and then he'll let you go. Uh, and notice verses 2 and 3. Speak in the hearing of the people that they ask, the people of the Hebrews, to ask of their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, for their gold and jewelry. And we read later how they plundered the Egyptians, apparently willingly on the part of the Egyptians, uh, possibly as a way of repayment for their years of slave labor in Egypt. But the Lord also says something, uh, or the verse also says something interesting in verse 3, the Lord gave the people, the Hebrew people, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, remember, we've seen the Lord's sovereign sway over the heart of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, because of his sinful wickedness, would harden his own heart. Sometimes it would just say his heart was hardened. But there would be times with the plagues where it would say the Lord hardened his heart, which itself is an act of, of judgment. Uh, simply confirming Pharaoh in his own resistance to the Lord, the work of the Lord, the word of the Lord, so that even in the midst of uh, Egypt and tatters all around him, he was still shaking his fist in the Lord's face, so to speak. Well, here it says very clearly the Lord gave the Hebrew people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord's whole sway over their hearts, too. Uh, and despite everything that's going on, the suffering they have endured, they look upon the Hebrew people with some degree of, of favor. And not only the, the Hebrews as a whole, but the middle of verse 3 says, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Pharaoh may be sick and tired of him and want him out of his sight, but it says among Pharaoh's servants, which we would assume would be court officials and, and, and whatnot, and the people themselves, they, they looked at Moses as a great man. And as well they may, because he has uh, single-handedly, or along with Aaron, and not his own power, but that of the Lord, uh, demonstrated great power. Moses would say things, and they came true. They happened. His God was the God who reigned. So the people had some measure of respect, if not admiration, for Moses and looked up to him. And even among Pharaoh's servants themselves. So the Lord is sovereign. He's at work here. Now, Moses then in verse 4 declares this, this word of judgment to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. Uh, and he reveals to him the plan. About midnight, I'll go out in the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, all the way from Pharaoh's own household, presumably an heir to the throne, 
uh, all the way down to the most humble citizen of, of Egypt, will also suffer this pain of the loss of a firstborn. And not just among the people, but among the animals. Firstborn will die. And of course, as you can well imagine, verse 6, there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. A cry of anguish, crying out to the false gods, such as has never been, nor will be again. But again, the distinction, verse 7, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Why a dog? That's interesting. Why, why, why would he say, not a dog shall growl? Well, it may just be speaking literally. There's just, you're just not even, not only will they not have death, they won't even have an, an irritable dog growling at them. But the, dog, the reference to a dog may not be coincidental. The Egyptians had another god that we've talked about, and we've talked about God's plagues last week, uh, often aimed specifically at certain deities, certain gods of Egypt. Well, the Egyptians had another god, the god of death, the god of embalming. The god's name was Anubis. And you may have seen Anubis. Uh, Anubis was usually depicted in the form of a dog. And it could be that there's significance in that reference to a dog not even growling, kind of a backhanded uh, slap at Anubis, the god of death, the god of embalming. That ultimately it was not Anubis who had no power to protect Egypt, but it was the Lord who was the determiner of life and of death. Not Anubis, not this dog god, but the Lord himself. Make a distinction, again, showing the Lord's power to judge those in rebellion against him and to spare his elect people. Now, verse 8, all these your servants shall come down to me, Moses, and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot Anger. Remember, we started out with Moses saying, please let us go. And now Moses himself says, fine, you won't see my face again. The Lord gives him this final revelation. And he says, he says, your own people are going to be telling me to get out of here. And he, he basically storms out of the place. Now, the Lord said to Moses, he won't listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Apparently, even at this point, there was still the opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, to say, I'm wrong, spare Egypt this final plague, but he doesn't do it. And uh, verse 10 just summarizes, they did these wonders, various plagues, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't let Israel go out of his land. And so you have this judgment. Uh, This final plague, this horrible plague that the Lord has threatened against Egypt, but also declaring he would spare Israel. However, as we've said, at this point, Israel, the Hebrews, uh, have to do something to enjoy that protection, to enjoy that mercy. And that something was the Passover. And we get to that in chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
uh, could also be rendered this month is for you. This that was the condition already. This is the first of months, the beginning of months. Uh, on the tenth day, everybody was to get an animal. Take an animal, lamb, according to their household. Uh, if it's too small for a lamb, basically it works out they could share. If the household was too small to eat a whole lamb themselves, they could go in with another household, whatever the situation might be, because it was important the whole thing be eaten. And uh, it's to be a lamb without blemish. You can't take that uh, three-legged straggler on the verge of death anyway and offer it up. It had to be a good lamb. could be you know, sheep or goat, either one, but it had to be a, a year-old lamb, no blemish, and choose it on the 10th day and keep it until the 14th day, verse 6, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, between the two evenings, which seems to have the idea between the time the sun goes down and the time it actually gets dark. So twilight, as uh, the ESV, I think, accurately render it, renders it. And so at that time, on the 14th day, first month, they are to sacrifice these animals that they have chosen. Now, the Lord says in verse 7, they're to take some of the blood of that animal, and they are to apply it to the doorposts and to the lintel, the cross piece over their doorposts uh, of their homes, to cover their homes, the entrance to their homes with this blood. And then eat, verse 8, eat the flesh that night, Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Roasted, all of it, let none of it remain until morning. Now, there may be some symbolism in these various elements. Uh, the roasting, the unleavened bread indicating what the Lord's about to tell them, the haste with which they're to leave, not having time just to let the, the, the bread rise and leavened bread rise and so forth. Uh, the bitter herbs, perhaps uh, reflecting the bitterness of their suffering, their slavery in Egypt. Uh, Let none of it remain, uh, perhaps pointing to the fullness, the completeness of the uh, redemption that they are about to enjoy. If there is significance in those things, then that that perhaps is is what they point to. And again, uh, verse 11, they are to eat it, belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, no lying around reclining at table here, uh, they are to eat it in a state of readiness, a state of preparation. They are to eat it with a sense of urgency, a sense of haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn, both man and beast. And not just Egypt, but again, this statement. Notice the statement at the end of verse 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so with this tenth and final plague, the Lord is showing his supremacy, not just over Pharaoh, not just over Egypt as a great nation, but over the gods, these false gods in whom they trusted. Once again, showing that he is the true and living God. He is the Lord with whom they have to do. As far as the Israelites are concerned, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is going to show himself to be the true God. It's reminiscent of uh, what he would later say through Isaiah, Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
Now, he says the blood will be a sign for you. A sign of what? Well, certainly a sign of salvation. That blood is a a reminder to them. It serves to show God's judgment on the Egyptians. It serves as a reminder to them of how the Lord rescued them. But a sign for you, not just God's judgment on the Egyptians, but a sign to the Hebrews that they too deserve judgment. God. No, they're not out worshiping Anubis, Ra, or any of these uh, Egyptian deities. But they themselves are guilty. They, they are not shown favor by the Lord because they're somehow more righteous than the Egyptians. And so with this final plague, with blood on the doors, the Lord means that for a sign to remind them. That yes, though he spared them to this point and will spare them again, they need to remember that they're no better before the Lord than the Egyptians are. They, too, have their idols of the heart. They, too, have these false gods in which they trust. And the Lord uses the blood as a sign on those doorposts to remind them that they, before the Lord, are no better than the Egyptians, but also of his redemption. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So it is a sign of the judgment of God on Egypt, a sign that Israel itself deserves this same judgment, but also a sign of their salvation. It meant for them redemption. When the Lord sees the blood, he would pass over their home. Now, as we look at this and think about this, it doesn't take a great deal of theological imagination to recognize here the the foreshadowing of the gospel. Uh, as Paul said in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ is our Passover lamb. You see, it was no coincidence that Jesus died at Passover. Jesus was the lamb of God. Jesus was the one, the lamb without spot, without blemish, had no sin in himself. You see, we need to recognize, like Egypt, like the Hebrews back then, we too are under the judgment of God. We too have violated his laws. We too have worshipped false gods. We too have trusted in idols. And the Passover, or certainly now the blood of Christ on the cross, Christ our Passover lamb, Uh, is a sign to us, both of our sinfulness, both of our sinfulness and our worthiness of God's judgment, but at the same time, a sign to us of God's mercy and God's grace, just as it was to the Hebrews, of allowing a substitute to die in the place of the sinner. We basically are in the position of, if not Egypt, then of those Hebrews. We are sinful Israel. We have to put the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorposts of our house. Not literally, as they did, but certainly over the doors of our hearts. How? Well, first of all, we have to understand. We have to understand what was going on here. The wages of sin is death. A death has to 
happen to atone for sin. So first we respond to this by understanding that the soul that sins shall die. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God does not forgive our sins in a vacuum. He doesn't just declare, well, I, I pardon you. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to remember it anymore because his justice has to be satisfied. And it is satisfied. It's satisfied either in the soul that is ultimately and finally cast into hell forever under the wrath and judgment of God, or it was satisfied Calvary's cross. So there has to be understanding that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no righteousness. There is only the judgment of God. And that's where Egypt was. God points out to the Hebrews, yes, I spare you, but not because you're righteous. It's by sheer grace allowing a substitute to die in your place. So understanding. Second is believing. We do have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. What do you think went through the mind of those Hebrews as they were putting that blood on the doorposts of their house? Moses had told them that in the night, the Lord would pass through Egypt and, in fact, Goshen. And any home that was not covered by the blood of the lamb, firstborn, would die. How would you sleep that night? Not very well, I would imagine. It kind of depended on how well you were trusting in the blood of that lamb to protect you. Or would the Lord enter in and slay your firstborn? Well, those, ho- those homes that had the blood were counting on trusting in that blood to protect them. And in fact, it did. As the Lord came through, you would see that blood. The house would remain untouched. The firstborn remains alive, unharmed. In an Egyptian household, no blood. Firstborn dies. You see, it's not just understanding the principle of substitution, the principle of atonement, but it's having confidence in that blood to save. And there's a big difference between, on the one hand, acknowledging facts about Jesus. Yes, I believe he died. Yes, I believe he was the Son of God. Yes, I believe he rose from the dead. And an actual, by the grace of God, trust in, reliance upon him consciously as a sacrifice dying in your place to protect you from the judgment of God. The difference is between that of acknowledging facts and conscious, willing trust in the shed blood of Jesus as your Savior. So responding with understanding, responding with belief. Have you done that? Are you there? Or are these mere facts that you think about on Sunday and forget until the next Sunday? Is it a conscious part of your daily life that you are trusting in Jesus, that when you stand before God, that he will receive you to himself rather than sending you into darkness, into hell itself, Because the blood of Jesus is on the doorposts of your heart. You have that trust. And then the final response is that of worship. That of devotion to the Lord. For all too many people who profess to be believers, the whole idea of salvation is mere fire insurance. Well, I don't want to burn in hell. So, yeah, sure, I trust in Jesus. I believe in him. But how does it affect your life? What difference does that make in the way that you live? Do you love Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Do you follow him? Do you consciously live each day 
as best you're able by his grace, instructed by your word, filled with his spirit to his glory. Because you want to please him. You want to do those things that honor him. Or do you live rather indifferently where Jesus is concerned? It's not really of much interest or concern to you what his will is. You live your life the way you want to. Maybe give him a nod on Sunday. Or is he the focus of your life? You see, worship, our whole lives now oriented around the service of Christ. It's very biblical. It's certainly found throughout Paul's letters. But then even we go to the last book of the Old Testament, having moved now from Exodus and the Passover all the way, the final book of the New Testament, we see that not just understanding, not just trust in the Lamb, but adoration, worship itself is the response. We see this in Revelation where we read, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Not just the Hebrews out of Egypt, but from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, that's what they're singing in heaven about Jesus. What are you singing on earth about Jesus? What does your life say about Jesus? You see, if we really do understand, if we really are believing, then it will result in worship. Our hearts will be singing this song, Worthy are you, Lamb of God, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Lord, that Passover lamb that died, pointing to the great lamb of God who would die for his people, who would die for us, who would die for me. Lord, what love you showed in sending your son. Lord Jesus, what love you showed in going to the cross. Lord, we pray the reality of this substitutionary atonement would fill us with faith in that great Savior and would lead us to worship you in our lives every day with our entire beings for so great a redemption, so great a redeemer. We pray in his name. Amen.